Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Norman McLeod, who has deep expertise in aviation safety, uh, a really good understanding of the impact of system and system factors on safety. Uh, so, Norman, welcome to the, the show. Thank you very much, Eric. So, Norman, let's get started with a little bit about your, your uh, background, because you've got a lot of years, a lot of experience across the space of aviation safety. Uh, okay, I mean, where to start? <laughs> when you're my age, there's a lot to talk about. Um, so my degree is in botany and zoology. So I've always had an interest in sort of systems from a biological perspective. Um, when I was in the Air Force, I was involved with uh, training young officers, leadership training. And then I moved into uh, being a training specialist on the Charlie 130 transport aircraft. That led me to observe a lot of crews flying. Mm -hmm. And I was amazed at the differences between how crews function. That hmm. sort of got me interested in this idea of, uh, well, crew resource management, although we didn't call it that back then. Sure. But it's this whole thing about how people work together, but more broadly, how the system functions. You know, how, how does the behavior of the crew in this case, how is it influenced by the bigger picture? So what are we trying to achieve by um, sticking people in an airplane and sending them to war? And how mm -hmm. do, do bigger decisions about, say, tactics and strategy elsewhere shape the way the crew functions? Now, I know that probably sounds a little bit crazy, but it was this sort of fascination how you couldn't really look at things in isolation. You had to mm -hmm. see the bigger picture to understand why things happened. So that's what sort of really got me going. And then uh, when I left the Air Force, I moved into civil aviation. And again, I found it was how an airline works was probably mm -hmm. more interesting than necessarily how individuals work. And it's seeing that relationship between what are the business goals? What's, what's the airline mm. trying to achieve? And how does that filter through to the operation and shape the way individual pilots do their job of work? I mean, pilots is mm. where I've spent a lot of my work, but I've seen cabin crew as well. And then in latter years, you know, I've tried to get a foothold in healthcare. And there, unless you take the bigger picture, you really mm. can't understand the way a healthcare system works. So that, that's a sort of a rough trajectory that gets me to where I am today. Uh, it's phenomenal. So, so your, your themes on systems, very complex. A lot of organizations are challenged to understand the linkage between different events, like what you talked about, how the context in which I'm operating impacts my decision-making. One thing that really struck me when, you, when we first connected is, is really when you talked about the purpose of the business, you yeah. talked about this financial purpose. Tell me a little bit more about that. 
theme. Okay, well, at the end of the day, um, an entity exists in a commercial sense to, to generate a return on investment. Sure. Even if you look at something like um, emergency helicopters or police helicopters, you've got mm-hmm. similar constraints there in that although you're not generating a return on the investment, you've got to generate capability within budget. So therefore, everything is driven by money at the end sure. of the day, either in a constraint sense or in an, an output sense. And the way a business configures itself to make money then shapes things like, um, in an airline's case, you know, what routes do you fly? What aircraft do you operate? What's the age of your aircraft? Uh, what technical support do you give to your crews? Um, where do you recruit your crew from? Mm-hmm. Um, how many crew per aircraft? Uh, what's the turnover rate? So that there are so many factors that are driven by those financial decisions. And half the time, um, I, I don't think managers are necessarily aware of the relationship between their decisions. They think they're just doing the best job for their shareholders. Usually. Sure. I don't think they see the relationship between those decisions and you know what happens out on the line and how that affects safety. Because that's the bit that I'm interested mm. in. How, how is it likely to either put people in a position they're not prepared for, put people in a position that they are possibly not fully motivated to deal with okay i'm going to be careful what i say here but nonetheless that relationship between business decisions percolates mm-hmm. through into things like morale motivation um skills level i mean I, i'm doing work in in healthcare at the moment mm-hmm. you've got a high turnover rate so the problem you've got is staffing now mm-hmm. You've got to recruit them, you've got to train them, you've got to retain them. And if you have a high churn rate and also your gapping posts, you're actually putting load on the remaining um, healthcare workers. Um, I was talking to someone recently, they've they've had a big recruitment drive. They've got a lot of new staff. That sounds like a good idea. No, it just adds Mm -hmm. to the oversight because, you know, you're constantly doing your own work and making sure the new people are doing their job properly as well. So that's what I mean by the relationship between you know, management decisions and safety out on the line. And I think your point linking it to financial purpose, I think is very good. Uh, and I think the other element is it translates indirectly, like what you talked about just there is the financial link to say the HR practices around the recruiting, which are also driven by the financials. We're not saying we shouldn't be financially driven. We're not saying... Uh, we shouldn't be trying to pro- to provide a profit, but how do we also educate the rest of the organization around those decisions that I'm making that can ultimately impact safety? Is that a fair comment? Yeah, it's it's, na- it's naive to ignore the um, the need for financial viability. I mean, the airline wouldn't exist if it wasn't making money. It's as sure. simple as that. But um, an example I gave when we first spoke. Uh, a carrier that I worked with in, in Southern Europe, very seasonal operation. Okay, so they recruit um, seasonal cabin crew that just do the uh, the summer period. Mm-hmm. And I was able to track through their numbers the uh, the baseline sort of permanent crew, the arrival of the new hires, the time it took to train the new hires and get them out on the line 
lagged behind the increase in summer traffic. So at the front end of the season, you, you have that sort of tension between the speed of getting the new hires mm-hmm. out into productive flying and the demand because you know you, you're selling seats to uh, holidaymakers. And the way that was manifested was, was two things. The mm-hmm. first is at the front end of the season, you got this um, spate of um, slides being set off accidentally because you've mm-hmm. got new hire staff who are not fully um, capable with the best will in the world. You've got high operational demand. And this was reflected in, at the start of every summer season, all of these slides being deployed accidentally. Now, it's settled down as they, um, as they, they gained in experience. But then the next thing you saw at the back end of the season, as the traffic started to decline and the summer hires started to go back to other jobs, mm-hmm. you noticed long-term sickness went up. And it was strange the way it was sort of, it was lagging everything else. Mm-hmm. And what it suggests is your permanent crew were working so hard that you had this sort of bout of um, long-term sickness absence, usually stress-related, mm-hmm. which you then carried through the winter. And that, that's what sort of led me to believe that it must be the permanent staff that are affected by the stress of getting through the summer because your summer casuals have left the company. Your high sickness sure. rate is the, the permanent staff recovering during the winter period. <laughs> so that's what I mean by the, you know, the relationship between the business model which is seasonal based on um, holidaymakers who want to go to the south of Europe, and then how that's reflected in your recruitment policies, your training policies, and how you see the effect in um, adverse events and crew sickness. And for those who don't come from aviation, a slide deployment is not a good thing. It, it's, it, could, it could kill somebody very easily because of the impact and the force of the deployment of a, of a, of a shoot or a slide. And the pace at which it does it, uh, plus it causes operational issues, costs. It's a huge slowdown on the aviation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the the the, 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 the aircraft is taken offline. The the slide's got to re- be replaced. Um, I have spoken to someone who was in the forward galley of an aircraft when a slide went off inside the aeroplane. Inside. Yeah. If you don't go out of the way, it it can hurt. It can hurt. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. So, so phenomenal example. You also had an example from an Asian carrier related to fatigue and scheduling, and I'd love if you could touch on that one as well. Okay, now f- fatigue is the big burning issue mm. uh, in lots of um, safety sensitive sort of areas, and it's something that I'm I'm looking at in uh, healthcare at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I look specifically at. Um, a cadre of pilots uh, in a, an Asian carrier. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful f- to the pilots for tolerating me and, and answering all of my questions. But th- there's two types of fatigue. You can see, um, you can call it acute fatigue, which mm-hmm. is, in simple terms, and a real psychologist will shoot me for this, just call it tiredness. You, you can usually sure. recover from acute fatigue by having a couple of good nights sleep. And that's the sort of fatigue that is measured in um, fatigue risk management systems that are commonplace in aviation. They're trying to introduce them into healthcare in the UK. And that's fine. 
But it only looks at one aspect of fatigue. The other aspect of fatigue is just basically um, the psychological effect of the daily grind. You, you can call that chronic fatigue. And that's like having mm. a rucksack on your back. And a good mm -hmm. night's sleep is not going to have anything to do with that. It's, it's your morale and motivation. It's your work-life balance. And I was able to, on the one hand, look at the acute fatigue. I, I tracked how fatigue built during um, the working day as such. Mm -hmm. I was able to look at relationships between that and error rates. So this particular operator, they, they were you know 24-7. I looked at night cargo. And what I found mm -hmm. was that if you're a local pilot operating night cargo, you were flying off your body clock. So you were flying yes. at the time of day when you yep. should have been asleep. Yep. If you then compared those with crew that operated um, long haul, mm -hmm. so they were now flying during the night in the local area, but their body clock was still on home base. So it was daytime for them. If you look at the relationship, the people who were flying daytime body clock but local night, their error rates were less than half those that were forcing themselves to stay awake and wow. fly through what we call that window of circadian low, that period of, you know, between, say, sure. I don't know, two and four in the morning when your body is just screaming out to go to sleep. So that was one aspect of it. But when you then looked at the, um, the chronic fatigue side, the psychological side of things, now, you've got to think of, first of all, what's the baseline? And there, there haven't been, and that's the problem when you look at fatigue in particular, we don't really know what normal looks like. So the few studies that have looked at this idea of chronic fatigue in the normal population suggests that 30 to 40% of the average person in the street, if they were tested, would be showing signs of chronic fatigue. You look at healthcare, you're looking at 65 to 70%. You look at aviation, and I know of four studies that have used the same um, benchmark. So you can do comparison. Hmm. And for pilots, you're looking about 80%. So 80% of the workforce is showing the signs of chronic fatigue. Okay, the question is, so what? You've then got to look at what are the other effects that flow from that. And here's where you see things like, um, so excessive daytime sleepiness. That's a standard measure that's used. It's the propensity to fall asleep. So you, you sit down in an armchair and before you know it, you've dozed off. Mm -hmm. If you have excessive daytime sleepiness, it correlates with mental health and about 20% of airline pilots are above the threshold on daytime sleepiness which suggests they're at risk of mental health effects but hmm. then I also looked at um, work-life balance um, and again if you scored high on um, chronic fatigue your work-life balance was was adversely affected and I looked at a global measure of mental and physical health. Now, this thing has been used all around the world and is, is well established. And again, high chronic fatigue correlates with uh, poor mental health. So hmm. that aspect of fatigue is not addressed. 
in any way sure. by the, the regulatory framework. It just deals with the sleep side of it. So you've got two mm-hmm. problems here in aviation and in healthcare. We try to measure one bit and control it. We ignore the other bit because it's too difficult. And, and now we yeah. come back to where we started this conversation. So there's a big trend um, at the moment for um, well-being and peer support and things like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of airlines do give their support for um, peer support groups within their airlines. Yep. And I'm going to be a bit radical here. I, I feel that that's actually the airline um, avoiding its responsibility. It's tokenism. The, the people involved are genuinely doing the best job they can. But this is a piece of Band-Aid. So we're trying to sort of fix the problem by um, letting people have access to a support network. What we're not doing is fixing the problem at source. Mm-hmm. So it's an easy way out. Now, how do you fix the problem at source? Well, that's the challenge because there is no right. one size that fits all. You know, there's age effect, there's the type of flying, there are, there are so many variables, it's difficult. Each individual airline has got to recognize the problem and work out a solution that works for them. But never underestimate um, human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in the UK, with the introduction of the European Working Time Directive, working hours in healthcare were capped. And a common model is um, doctors and nurses working three 12-hour shifts a week. And that means they they, they reach their their total. Okay. A 12-hour shift is frankly crazy from a safety (laughs) perspective in a domain like healthcare. But if you do um, sort of customer satisfaction surveys, what you'll find is a lot of nurses, and I just happen to have looked at a, a study of nurse attitudes, a lot of nurses like doing three 12-hour shifts because it gives them four days in the week they can do overtime. Mm, but that keeps you away from your rest. <laughs> Something that is trying to limit your effort for, for beneficial reasons sure. creates a situation where people can... Um, you know, do something that they want to do because they want more money, it's, it's, it's working against itself. And then mm-hmm. this is always the problem. In all of this, you've always got to remember that, you know, there is human nature at work. So there is, yes. there is the perfect world and there's the real messy <laughs> world of human beings. And even when you're trying to do things in the best interest of human beings, they will have other motivations. This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. Your aviation example, there was another one you shared with me, which was another Asian carrier as well around fatigue and linked to scheduling. And this had to do with 
um, from what I recall around flying over China and airspaces being restricted and how fuel loads would also be impacted. Yeah, uh, this is where it does start to get messy. I mean, there's, there's two aspects there. We've also got to remember we're talking geopolitics to a degree. So um, Chinese airspace, for example, uh, because it's, it's all controlled by the military and they have a huge tendency to suddenly shut down um, blocks of airspace because they're having an exercise of some sort. And sure. you, you might not even know about it until you're airborne. Um, now, that's going to have an effect on your routing which means that for all long-haul carriers um, operating through that sort of airspace, fuel management is, um, is an issue and does mm-hmm. require crews to, 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 to properly understand you know, how to manage the fuel on their aircraft. And you, know, you will find um, crews arriving at the destination after 12 hours of flying seriously having to manage the fuel remaining. Then, of course, you've got weather effects that could then mess up your best plan when you arrive at the destination. So that's one side of it. But then you've got um, another aspect. I mean, on the one hand, you've got uh, the effects of fatigue on performance. So you're, ex- you're asking people to uh, manage complex situations that are unpredictable whilst tired. So you'll see decision-making that is probably uh, not optimal, because people think that the simplest thing to do is just to get the aircraft on the ground. And in so doing, they sometimes take risks that you wouldn't expect from a properly rested crew. But the other mm-hmm. thing you've got is, um, we get back to the, the business side of it. You know, Aircraft are dispatched with enough fuel to get to the destination with a contingency. And there are computer programs that manage this and build in seasonal variability and the routes you're flying etc but you'll always have pilots who want to take a bit more um, mm-hmm. I worked for a European airline once and it was affectionately known as Auntie Betty's Ton so <laughs> at dispatch you'd get your plan fuel and then you'd add a ton for Auntie Betty all the pilots <laughs> call it that which of course you know you burn fuel to carry fuel so that's inefficient But what I was finding was that as pilots get older, they like a quiet life. So if I looked at the the pilots who carried more than planned fuel, it was Mm -hmm. typically the older pilot because they wanted a quiet life. They didn't want to be in a position where they suddenly were presented with a challenge. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would speak to first officers about this, and they'd say, look, you know, I, I fly with these guys. Some of them are knackered. And they, they don't want to do anything that is just going to add <laughs> to that burden. So this is where you see that relationship between what's in the best interest of the, um, the airline, um, what's um, the, the attitude to the job, and the effects of fatigue uh, all comes together in a lack of efficiency. Um, so I, that's, that's something that sort of came out of some of the work that I did. And these are all phenomenal examples because very few organizations are able to track the relationship between these decisions that create the that are part of the system. How how do you go about in an organization surfacing these themes, and how do you drive solutions around some of these system impacts? 
Ah, oh, right. Now that, that's that's. <laughs> if I had the answer to that, <laughs> um, the first the first issue, of course, is is knowing the scale of the problem. And mm-hmm. I go back to that cadre of pilots who kindly answered my my questionnaire. And the, the number of times people would say to me, you know, well done for trying, but no one will listen. And I said, yeah, but they, people, management can't unknow what it now knows. So if if mm-hmm. if they don't understand the scale of the problem, then they're in a position to just ignore it. So the first thing you've got to do is to reveal the problem. But the the the, the real challenge in something like aviation is because it is it is fundamentally safe without a shadow of a doubt. And mm-hmm. pilots, practitioners, the people who work in those systems work to keep themselves safe. So to a degree, the risk that's inherent in what we're talking about here is masked because people are pragmatic, they work hard, they sort things out in real time. What they don't necessarily do is to um, then share the risks they're exposed to. So for example, Mm -hmm. my, my, um, my study of fatigue, I had more than one pilot would come up to me in class and give me an example of when they fell asleep at the controls of the aeroplane. Sure. And I said, did you, um, did you report that? And they laughed at Mm -hmm. me and said, you've got to be kidding. You know, this, there's no (laughs) way I would own up to that. And, and this is, this is where, you know, reporting systems don't really capture the whole problem. And I hate to say it, but it's, probably an area where we do we need to start thinking about other technological solutions i mean trains for example have the technology to detect when a, a train driver might be dozing off sure so and some cars nowadays even have exactly that ability built in yeah so although it will be sort of fiercely resisted on airplanes maybe the time has come to start looking at that. wearable technology there's, there's all sorts of things we could start to use now because at the end of the day, you know, we want to protect the crew as well as the passengers. So, you know, no, no, nobody's more important on that aeroplane. Everyone's got to come home safely at the end of the day. But the thing is, first of all, you've got to establish the scale of the problem. You've got to explore the implications of it. Uh, for example, uh, we were talking about, you know, how, how to reduce fatigue. Well, work less. And the answer you get every time is that, ah, that would involve spending more money. Well, actually, it doesn't. So I was looking at some studies of nurses in, in another country. They, they were mm-hmm. reducing the working week from five days to four days. And what they found was that productivity went up sickness absence reduced so the net cost was um the same at the end of the day you ended up with a happier workforce who were there more often than they used to be so part of the problem is you know just resistance to doing something differently but we've got to look at things like that the personal side of it you know i I talked about nurses who like three-day weeks so they can do overtime one UK operator I was aware of did offer reduced contracts to you know some of the older pilots, and a colleague told me of a friend 
who opted for this. And what he found was, because of the UK taxation system, by flying less, he got paid less. But when you took out the reduced tax bill, the, the net loss was negligible compared <laughs> right. to the improved, you know, home life and everything sure. went with it. So it, it was a, a, a price worth paying. Now, of course, not everybody can do salary mm. sacrifice. If, if you're younger, you've got a family, these things are challenging, which is why, you know, one size does not fit all. But it's a case of exploring. And I suppose what I've just said there is the, is the answer. Um, have adaptable contracts according to pilot needs based on where they are in their life cycle. It just requires progressive um, HR departments. That's all. It's not rocket science at the end of the day. The evidence is all out there if people go looking for it. And I think part is also where you started at the front end is that businesses are financially driven, yeah. which is perfectly fine. But it's also, we tend to talk about safety at the operational level. So in aviation, you'll talk about safety for the flight crews. But we don't necessarily talk as much about safety to the finance department, to the HR department, to understand how they impact a perfect day for a pilot. And, and there's an element of, of awareness of in the decision making, I think, that also can have a key impact. Exactly. And this is why you've now got to start looking at that bigger systems view. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've just uh, introduced um, a, the equivalent of an air accident investigation branch into healthcare. And it's just been reorganized and given a new name. And the first report that it published just a couple of months ago was on whether healthcare needs um, a safety management system. And the, the new sort of interim chief executive announcing the report made a comment that finance directors need to get more involved. Okay. Yep. Now that created a furore. And <laughs> the, the, the health system finance directors have their own little sort of trade union and they went public criticizing this comment. So I wrote a little article which went out on a blog and I said, finance directors do have an effect on safety. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And here's how. And I, I sort of, I developed this, uh, this systems model. If you think about an organization, it's, it's, um, it's a hierarchy of decision making. So I'm at the bottom and mm. I make decisions about how I'm going to do my job when I turn up for work. And I make decisions about things like, am I even going to come to work today because I don't feel very well. Once I'm at work, I'm part of a team. So I'm surrendering some of my autonomy to be a team member. And the team, whether it's the crew on the aircraft or it's the, the, the department I work in, make decisions about, you know, allocation of responsibilities, what are our goals, how do we apportion tasks and jobs. So there's a level of decision-making there about the organisation of work. And then I've already said mm-hmm. the next level up is the organisation itself, the airline. And it makes a set of decisions. It's, it's all decisions that drive outcomes. And then above the airline, of course, you've got the regulator. Mm -hmm. So the regulator makes decisions about how aviation will run within its jurisdiction. So I was just trying to elaborate on this model and show how 
decisions made by, in this case, finance directors, as we've already alluded to, do have an effect out on the front line and will shape safety. But the problem is, and here when you start thinking about systems, you've got to consider cross-scale effects. So an act in one area will have an outcome in another area, but in ways that you possibly couldn't predict, you couldn't anticipate, mm-hmm. and therefore you know you, you couldn't manage for. You just have to live with it, but recognise that it's a, a possibility that your decisions will work in ways you never really intended. I think it's a lot more frequent and common than we think. And, and the, the complexity as well from a system standpoint, and these and some of the examples that I've seen is the impact of a decision doesn't necessarily manifest itself that day, that week, that month. The examples you share, there was proximity. But I've seen the impact of decision making, particularly when you're talking about hiring, where you have hiring peaks, because we talked about seasonality, but sometimes there's good years and there's bad years financially. And so there, there's big hiring some years, and then you don't hire for a couple of years. That can have an impact three, seven years down the road in terms of level of proficiency, skills that people had because they weren't necessarily properly trained or didn't have the experiences they needed. And so that becomes easier to to abdicate the role of my decision to the impact. But the other element is safety is not the absence of, of injuries uh, or events. And so if I take one pound or a dollar for a particular transaction, if I take a penny out, probably there's no impact. If I take two penny out, probably no impact. If I take three, maybe, maybe not. And so there's a complexity there. You don't know where where there's a trigger. If I cut something, when's the impact? And could it have an impact three to seven years down the road? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think touching on what you said there, I worked with an airline once mm. that had a, a very stable workforce and they'd all grown old together basically Wow, and then, and that's then rare. <laughs> some of some of them were now sort of getting to the point where it's, it's time to retire and move on to other things. So they had, they had a little recruitment drive, and it was absolute chaos because hmm. the the workforce that had been there for years had learnt to communicate by telepathy. You know, we're talking about mm. cabin crew. You, yep. only, you only had to look down the cabin, and you knew what the other person wanted. Sure. And all of these, um, all of these new hires that had just come in, young kids, clearly hadn't had the telepathy chip in schools when they were recruited, <laughs> and right. the, the breakdown in the, the crew functioning was, you know, if, if it wasn't funny, it would be quite awful. But it was, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's something that we we tend not to really think about the fact that. A, a low churn rate is almost as bad as a high churn rate. We've, we've got to reflect mm-hmm. on the fact that, you know, we need to keep reminding ourselves of how we do the job. And then when someone mm-hmm. new comes along, they're not going to know how we do the job. And therefore, training and communication is, is all the more important. Yep. Even if you think about 2008, very little hiring in the airline industry or most industries in general. Same thing happened around COVID, very little hiring. All of this has an impact from a system standpoint because there's less experience. People maybe weren't flying as much to we weren't recruiting at the same pace as usual. And then suddenly you might have the scenario you talked about, about the Southern European airline where you've got a huge influx of new talent and that creates more stretch on, on the existing resources. Yeah, it's a problem. 
fascinating topics. Any closing thoughts on the system system side and encouraging people to really start exploring that side of safety? Um, I think, to be honest, for me, it was the next. It, it is the next frontier. Mm-hmm. Uh, partly, that's why I've always been interested in how the organisation works. So, in the European CRM regulation, there was always this like little one-line entry about organisational factors. So I'm thinking, well, what are those organisational factors? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't tell you anywhere in the um, you know the curriculum document. It's just there, and it's that sort of tacit recognition that the organisational behaviour has an effect. And that's why I became interested in it. But it's always seemed to me to be, it's the final frontier. We're just Mm -hmm. scraping at the surface of how um, the business works and the implications of the way it does business. So I suppose if I was going to say, well, one thing, at the worker level, the the natural tendency is to get resentful and to blame the then management. Mm-hmm. Whichever floor they work on, it's that floor that is the problem. Um, if it's operational management, so flight ops departments, you know, they're, they're the same as line pilots. Uh, they think the same, they, they act the same, they have the same problems. The non-operational um, managers have a different focus. So understand what their different focus is. Uh, Don't get angry with them. They're just trying to do a different job Mm -hmm. than yours. But they're still trying to make sure that everyone gets paid at the end of the day. So part of the problem is people tend to get defensive rather than trying to understand why the other bit of the organization behaves the way it does. And then that's from the bottom looking up. From the top looking down... I think it's an awareness of the fact, as we've just said, whatever you do will have an outcome you didn't anticipate. So try to understand how that might be and to appreciate that the workforce like you is just trying to do its job to the best of its Mm -hmm. ability. But the, the fact remains, unless we understand how... These factors work. What are the relationships between um, decision making and outcome? Then you know we're never going to make this system as safe as it ought to be. Mm. It is safe because people behave in a safe manner. It's not necessarily safe because of how the organisation has designed the work process and equipped the workforce to do its job to the best of its ability. That's the bit we've got to get sorted out. Thank you, Norman. Really appreciate your insights and your tangible examples really bring this to life. So thank you very much for joining us. You're more than welcome. And if somebody wants to get in touch with you, Norman, what's the best way to do that? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I don't know. Maybe you can sort of post my email address. I'm happy for that to go out. I'm out there somewhere. (laughs) Thank you, Norman. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Elevate your safety. Like every successful athlete, top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance. Begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com. 
Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Makrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.